guys could be seated. I just wanted to just reiterate what I said a few weeks ago, guys. We have a great worship team that leads us in worship every week, don't we? Um, God's blessed us in mighty ways in that aspect. Um, that's probably one of my favorite worship songs we've ever, we do here. And um, just uh, how beautiful, you know, the name of Jesus is, how powerful the name of Jesus is. And as we were singing, I was just reminded of, of Revelation chapter 7. And I wanted to read that to you guys this morning because so many times I feel like I come to church and I go to group and I hang out with other believers. And sometimes life just kind of gets in the way. I don't know about you guys, but like I have my own agenda sometimes, you know. Um, I have life that, you know, I want to live with my family. I want to live with my friends. I want to have my, my things my way, right? Anybody else like that? Um, and so, I, you know, I think sometimes I forget that we worship a God who's literally on the throne right now. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like right now, while we're here worshiping, there's thousands and thousands of angels and people around the throne of Jesus right now that are singing praises to God right now while we are singing praises to God right now. And I think sometimes that we miss that. And I, as I was thinking, this is unplanned, so I'm going off cuff. Sorry here, but I'm just like, my heart is that we would see that as a church and we would glorify God for who he truly is. Not for who we create him to be. Not for... Not for the safe God that we create him to be sometimes in our hearts where we want to, we create this nice, soft, fluffy God that loves us all the time. You know, he does. But I'm saying this morning, this is what we're looking at. Like, it says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could count the number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along the elders, with the elders and the four living creatures, they, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God and said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so this morning, as we start, my heart will be that we could just get our hearts in a posture of prayer. Because this morning, if you are saying, if you're uttering the words in your life, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. I, I have gone from death to life in Christ. Your life is different. The trajectory of your life, the, the trajectory of your family, your finances, your work, your playtime, all those things are different because you have a Lord that you're bowing to as the Savior of your life, but also the Lord of your life. And the heart, the heart this morning, as we begin this morning's message, we're going to be talking about conflict in the church. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. But the heart behind this is that we bend our knee in submission to the Lord. That we have a God who's on the throne right now, and he is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be honored. He's worthy to be worshipped. And so many times I worship idols in my life rather than worshiping Jesus. I have these things that I set up in my life that I think are going to provide fulfillment for me, like money, like family, like all the things that we do in life. I, I try to set up these things, and, and nothing is going to satisfy me like the creator of my soul. And that's my prayer is that as a church, we would look to him, not to a pastor or a leader. We would look to Jesus, and we would follow him. And this morning, I know there's people in this room who have kind of loosely followed Jesus. They may be a fan of Jesus and maybe not be a follower of Jesus. They may have said, hey, I, I, I submit that there is a God and he's, he's on the throne, but I, I may not have ever sacrificed for him and given my life to him and made decisions with him in, in light of him. I may have bounced around to different churches until I found one that kind of, kind of you know, makes me feel good. But in reality, guys, it's about Jesus. We have it on the wall. It's all about Jesus. And this morning, I pray that is the focus of our hearts. And so I pray, like, just, let's just take a few seconds and just reorient our heart around Jesus this morning. If you want to bow at your, at your seat, if you want to come to this altar, if you want to grab your husband or wife's hand, if you want to grab your friend's hand, whatever you want to do, and just let's just put ourselves in a posture of prayer this morning. So, God, we love you. We praise you, God. We thank you, Father, for the, the sacrifice that you have made on the cross for us. God, never let that pass us by. Never let us see beyond that, God, because there's nothing else besides you and what you've done on the cross through the gospel. God, we, we thank you for making a way where there should not have been a way. 
God, we praise you for, for the church, God, even though we're imperfect and we, we mess up and we, we're, we don't know what we're doing sometimes, God, because we're, we're human, God. We know that you've given us your spirit, God, to empower us, God, and push us down the field of your, of your grace and, and to see your kingdom built in this world, God. I pray that we would be a body, we would be a church that would radically follow you, God, no matter what the cost. God, I pray that we would give our lives and leverage our lives for the gospel. I pray that, God, we would leverage our life to see your kingdom built here. God, not my kingdom, not our kingdom, but your kingdom. God, I pray that, that our hearts would just come into this place of submission. God, I pray against the hand of the enemy right now in Jesus' name. God, that the division that he tries to sow, that the hurt that he tries to give, that the, all the things that we see in him trying to come into the church and divide and conquer. God, I pray against idolatry in the church. God, I pray that you would show yourself to your people for who you truly are, God, a God who is worshipped and praised right now, on a throne right now. God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. God, strengthen our legs, strengthen our hearts. God, help us to, to see you for who you truly are. God, you're God worthy of everything. God, forgive us for, the, for the, just the, 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 the half-hearted praise that we give you sometimes. God, forgive us for the, for the way that we worship ourselves before you, God. God, reveal those places in our hearts, God, and give us the courage and the boldness to lay those things down before you. God, as we talk about division in the church today, as we talk about conflicts in the church today, God, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would get the praise and the glory, God. I pray, Jesus, you would be magnified in this place. God, make us a church that makes much of you, Father. I pray for the person in this room right now that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would break their heart and bring them into a relationship with you to show them how much you love them. God, I pray for the person in this room who has been a Pharisee, God, I pray that you would just break their hearts and bring them into a relationship with you. God, I pray for the person here who's been working for their salvation. God, I pray that you would show them it's by faith alone and through grace alone. God, I pray that you would bring them into that loving relationship with you. God, I pray for all the walls to be torn down this morning that have been built up. God, I pray for the broken heart of this morning that has been hurt by a parent or a friend or a church member or a pastor. God, I pray that you would bind those wounds up, God, and that they would see the love that you have for them. God, this morning, make your word come alive to us. God, change our hearts, convict us, and make us like you, Father. I pray for a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this house. God, that you would just move through us to reach our communities, not just Savannah or Effingham or Bryan or Liberty. God, but you would bring us into the place where we have access to the world. We would see the nations reach for your name. We would see the unreached reach, God. We would see the, the, the tactics and the schemes of the enemy fall because we know the power of the gospel is more powerful. God, I pray this morning that you would have your way. I pray that we would not settle for this being just another service, God, but we would come here in celebration of new life in Christ. God, we thank you. We thank you for this. We thank you for your church. God, thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the bride of Christ. God, thank you for letting me be a part of it. God, thank you for your salvation. God, thank you for that there's a way. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, that has to be the foundation of our heart. There's no more cultural Christianity. Uh, you know, that's, there's no more of that, especially here. As we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's what we're seeing. And what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're seeing Paul call the church to unity. We're seeing him say, guys, you may have your preferences. You may have these things that you want to see happening in the church. We, we may, you may have these things that you want to be doing in your life, but this is what you're called to live by. We're called, there's a standard of holiness that you're called to live by. And so God is pointing us, Jesus, or Paul is pointing us to God's desire for his church to be mature and unified. So that the most effective church that you can ever see is one that is unified and one that is mature. One that is growing in their faith, becoming like Christ, and one that is unified around the mission of God. The mission of God is to see all nations reach for the kingdom of God. That's it, starting here. And so what Paul has done for the last five chapters is he's shown us as the church how we're called to live together and relate to one another in a way that shows Jesus to the world. And I don't think, it's, I don't think anybody misses this, but like the world has seen a very poor picture of who Jesus is over the, over the years, right? I mean, I think the church has done a bad job of portraying Jesus 
to the world. And this morning, I want to kind of get around that and put our minds to seeing that change. And like many churches today, what, what they were doing, what the Corinthian church was doing is they were, align, they were not aligning themselves, their actions, their, their, their hearts around what they claimed they believed. They were saying, hey, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that the Holy Spirit has come and empowered his church. I believe we're called to live a life of holiness in light of Christ. But their lives were lived in a different way. So the culture was looking, this is what you're saying, and this is what you're doing, and it makes no sense. Right? And, that, and that's the heart that, that we're coming around today is seeing we cannot be a church like that any longer. Because if we're saying, hey, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. Guys, to the world, that sounds ridiculous. And you, if, you, if you believe something like that, it changes your life. It changes everything. You can't, you can't say, I believe a man died on a cross for my sins and rose again and ascended into heaven and lived your life the same way you always have. You can't do that. It's impossible. The gospel brings us together around this common mission to see Jesus' name reach the nations, to see his glory reach all people, starting right here in Savannah, Effingham, all the places we're living, starting right where you live, and that, that, that every person would hear the name of Jesus and have access to the hope of the gospel. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, we're gonna I'm going to share this a couple of times today. Uh, we were A few of us from the church went to Washington, D.C., um, to David Platt's church, and we were, we were going up there and kind of getting in power on how to disciple the nations into the church to see the, the church be awakened to the great need, the great imbalance of gospel illiteracy around the world. And, and what I was reminded of is there's 3 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus that had never seen a Christian, that I've never seen a Bible, that I've never seen a church. And that's mind-blowing to me. And the church should not be okay with that. And that today, that's the, what Paul was doing, is saying how you live amongst yourselves as the church is directly connected to your ability to reach those people. Because if we're here squabbling about the color of carpet or squabbling about what he or she said to me that hurt my feelings, we'll never reach the nations because we'll never get there because we're not mature enough. And my heart today is that we would see what Paul is calling us to. And so last week, what we saw was Paul start, sort of started this narrative of, of church relations and how we should practice church discipline, right? A lot, a lot of people were like, church, I never heard of church discipline until last week. But the question was, when a brother or sister is sins or is bound up in this unrepentant sin, how should we respond in a way that magnifies Christ to a world that's watching? How should we respond to, to, to the world that's watching, and how should we do it in a way that magnifies Christ? And so Paul showed us that the way that we handle sin in church is crucial to our witness to the world, right? We saw that overlooking sin in the name of grace, we're a grace-filled church. We love everybody. Come as you are, right? That's great. We want you to come as you are, but we want you to bend your knee to Jesus. And our heart today is that you would see. So what, overlooking sin in the name of grace actually celebrates and affirms sin instead of highlighting grace. Do you see that? And so we see God, through Paul, instructing us in the, in the right way to handle a brother or sister who is caught up in sin and unwilling to turn from it. So, and we saw that the primary goal in church discipline is always restoration and reconciliation. Who's ever, who's ever had a different view of that? We all, like we have, we've had a view, a view of that before where church discipline has been about pride and about seeing someone punished. That's not what it's about. It's about restoration and seeing a brother or sister back to a place where he can glorify God with his life. And so today, as we look at this chapter 6, what you're going to notice, if you look in your Bibles, the heading there, well, who sees lawsuits among believers? Anybody see that in their Bible? Okay. That's the heading um, for, the, for this chapter in my Bible. But this, this is a chapter that's not just pertaining to lawsuits and court proceedings. It's much deeper than that. It's pertaining to relationships within the church, both inside and outside the church between believers. And these interpersonal conflicts are going, are things that still go on today. Who, can, I, can you agree with that? Well, who in here has had a conflict with a brother or sister before? We all have. We've all had that issue before. And so Paul starts off in chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, If any of you have a dispute against another, you see that? Whose Bible says when you have a grievance with someone else? Okay, that's the better translation. It's when you have a grievance against a brother. Because in the church, let me just go ahead and give you a surprise. I'm going to be a spoiler alert here. In life, in the church, in family, as a human being, you are going to have grievances and conflicts against people, believe it or not. Anybody believe that? As soon as you move out of your parents' house, you begin to realize this isn't just something that's confined to your family, right? 
You begin to realize my brother and my sister was not just the only one that I hate, right? There's other people that I don't like because this is, there's some issues, right? So you see this. And so I've lived with a ton of roommates in my life. You know, my, 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 my current roommate's the hottest I've ever lived with. Um, just kidding. So I've, I've lived with a ton of roommates in my life and a bunch of different, I'm married, okay? Everybody, everybody watching online? Okay, good. No church discipline? We're good. Um, so I've lived with a ton of roommates in my life and high, or not high school, college, um, after college, um, you know, I've lived with my wife now for seven years. And the one thing that I've noticed in all of these contexts is everyone is annoying. Can, 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 we, can we agree on that? Everybody is annoying, man. Even the guys in high school and college that I thought were the coolest guys that I may have started to live with turned out to be pretty annoying. So just wash the dishes. Just put, up, put the towel on the rack. You know, just make up the bed the right way. I'm just kidding. Um, so, so even the guys that I thought, so what I've learned is that there's no one in your life who's not going to annoy you or frustrate you in some way at some point. Can we just foundationally just set that down? Okay. That's what's going on. And so if you say, if you come in here and say, well, Michael, I don't know what you're talking about. No one in my life annoys me. It probably means you're the person that annoys somebody else. Okay, so that's probably what's going on in, in, that, in that scenario. So it's, but it's important for us to see that God has a purpose in this. God has a purpose in these relationships where there's some conflict and some grievances and some, and some disagreements. And so what happens is these situations or people they, that frustrate us are usually the means that God uses to stir things up that are lodged in our hearts that he wants access to, and he allows these circumstances in our lives to shape us into the image of Christ. Amen. You see that? And so as we're looking at this, that's what we have to remember. And so here's what I've learned as a pastor even. In the context of the church, most Christians don't leave their church because of some theological issue or worship style. They don't. Most Christians leave a church because they got offended or they got their feelings hurt or they got wronged in some way and they didn't know how to biblically reconcile with a brother or sister, mostly due to pride of some form. Get real now? <laughs> Get real, right? And what we've seen in this book so far is that the church in Corinth was rapidly losing their testimony before the world. They're rapidly losing their testimony before the world. Not only do we see that, but what we've seen in this book is that the church was losing this testimony. Not only did the unsaved know about the immorality in the church, but they also saw and knew the, about the lawsuits and the disagreements that the brothers and sisters in the church were having because these lawsuits in the Greek culture were public spectacles. You can remember in Acts chapter 17 in Athens where Paul was debating these people. A lot of the, the lawsuits that were happening in these days were happening in public. So, you could, so what was happening is the Greeks were known for their involvements in the court. So these things were played out in the public square. So you can go make a grocery run and catch a lawsuit on the way home. Right, you go out there and watch them. You can watch them debate and see someone convicted and, and sentenced to death, and it was like it was like entertainment, right? There was this entertainment of some sort, and so. But what I see, sometimes these these they had like three thousand to six thousand jurors in, in attendance, deciding the fate of these people, and it was always popular opinion, not kind of like today the majority ruled, but it functioned more like an enter, entertainment for the masses rather than justice for the wrong, and so the churches were bringing this. There are problems to this spectacle. It was, a, it was a circus. And the problem, guys, today is what I see in our country. Our country is rapidly gaining this same reputation. Over just last year alone in 2020, there was 332,000 civil suits were filed in federal courts. There was 1.5 million lawyers that are handling these, these suits. When it comes to the state courts, there's over 12 million suits that were filed last year. 12 million. But where's the church in this? I, guys, I, I told you a moment ago that we went to a church a couple weeks ago to look at, the, look at some, uh, just some, how we can access some sending discipleship in our church. The church we went to was a very, leadership-wise, was a healthy church, but they're in the middle of a lawsuit of how they, there was some transition of pastors and elders, and there were some, some crazy things that happened. Some people didn't like what was happening, so they, they, thought, they filed a lawsuit against the church. Christians coming together and filing lawsuits against each other. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. And we're going to look at why that today. So let's keep reading. It says, if any one of you, when someone has a dispute against another in the church, 
What does he say? How dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, you are unworthy to judge. Excuse me. Are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge the angels? This is in Revelation 21, Daniel 7. How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? And so as we're reading this, what's happening here is there are some interpersonal conflicts that are happening. We don't know what they are. Paul doesn't give us that because it's probably not important because we don't know if it's unpaid debt. We don't know if there was an offense between someone who got legal, got, got into a legal issue. We don't know if it's some property claims or marital issues. But what we do know from verse 2 is that they were trivial issues. And so as I looked up what trivial means, it means of little value of or importance. So you see the church taking someone else from the church to court over something very small and unimportant when it comes to eternity. And as we look at this, we have to understand that we, we don't know what the issues were, but what we do know is that there was a communication breakdown between brothers and sisters. We, knew, we know that they were, they were in the church and, and both parties doubled down. They planted their heels in the ground and they refused to budge. Anybody else ever done that before? I'm right. I don't care what you say, I'm right. Anybody ever been there besides me? Just me? Okay. Help me out here. I don't want to be the only sinner, you know? Like, they w- wanted to be right. They needed to be right. They, they needed to prove that they were right and the other person was wrong. They, they wanted justice. They wanted vindication. And so what we're going to look at today is there's three dangers that we fall into when we face conflict. And that's the first one. The first danger we fall into when it comes to conflict is needing to be right. Anybody want to go ahead and get it off the table that that's you? I need to be right all the time? One or two people? Okay, we're, we're together, bro. So you may not rush off the court in this scenario to see, to see this done, but many of us fall into gossip in the name of making ourselves look right or winning people to our side, and it divides the church. But we may not take people to court, but we try to win people over to our side, which divides the church, the bride of Christ. You see that? You've seen this happen before? Yes, we all have. And I know you, you can think of someone right now who embodies this, but is this something that happens in you? Let's don't think other people, let's think ourselves this morning. Is this something that happens in us and you and me, where we, we try to make ourselves look right by talking to all these people and saying, this is what's happened, I'm right, they're wrong, and just be on my side. Let's do this again. That divides the church. And as I was studying this week, I read an article by a secular psychologist on this topic of needing to be right. And what she said, she said, people who need to be right tend to have fragile egos. When they feel that their self-image has been threatened, they want to make themselves look bigger or smarter. So they blame others. It's actually a coping mechanism to deal with insecurity. In other words, when the place that a person finds their identity is shaken, they feel uncomfortable. Can you, can you see that? And so what I see is it's important to identify where we feel like we need to be right in our life. But a better question I feel like for all of us might be why do we feel like we need to be right? Why do we feel like I need to be right? And as a Christian, I think we need to ask an even deeper question is what's going on in my heart when I need to be right? What's going on in my heart when I need to be right? And we feel the need to defend ourselves because the places in our hearts that we find our identity get shaken. And if those places are shaken, they ain't Christ. I got really country there for a second. If the places where you find your identity are getting shaken, they're not Christ. And so we need to identify those areas today and surrender those things to the Lord. Listen, when, when our identity is in what we are, who we are, what we have, what we know, what we earn, what we live, where we live, that can be shaken. Right? But when our identity is in whose we are, that can never be shaken. We just talked about in Revelation chapter 7, the glory of God being displayed before heaven and before us this morning, that cannot be shaken. Our God is unchangeable, unshakable. Do y'all know that this morning? That's beautiful. 
And so this invitation is what Christ gives to all of us. And this is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians to do, to uproot your identities that are in lesser things and plant them back in Christ. And that's what pastors do. My job is to remind you of the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again until you die. I'm reminding you of the hope that you have in Christ. But then on top of that, my job is to remind you to put your identity in Christ, not the things of this world. And that's the heart that we have to come at this text with today. And conflict, as we're looking at today, can serve as a tool to help reveal this to us. Conflict is a tool that God uses to reveal these things to us. So instead of rushing to be offended, rushing to, to be right, why not ask the question, what's going on in my heart that I need to surrender? What's going on in my heart that I need to let go of this morning? What happens is that conflict serves as a window into the hearts, into our hearts to show us where we put down roots in our life in things that aren't Christ. Y'all see that this morning? Anybody, can, can I get a witness on that this morning? Are y'all dealing with that this morning? Like we all have, we all have a, a tendency to do that. So Paul wants the Corinthians to see this, that, that when we do this, we're actually telling the world a message about Christianity that's not true. Whenever we're fighting against each other, whenever we're saying the blame game, whenever I'm fighting to be right, whenever division it wins the day, I'm screaming to the world a message about Christ that's not true. And I'm giving the world a counterfeit Christ, and I'm giving the world something that's not much different than what they already have. And so we damage what it means to be a Christ follower. And so when our, when our needing to be right begins to manifest itself in conflict and progresses to the point of needing outside forces to come in and mediate the conflict, that speaks a message to the world about the quality of the hope that we have in Christ. And so this morning, that's my heart is that we would see this. And so then this happens. Paul's going to show us in this chapter, he's going to show us three things that get communicated to the world when, we, when the church lives this way. This is three subpoints to plan one for those note takers in here. So Paul shows us three things that get communicated to the world when the church lives this way. The first thing it shows is the gospel is powerless. It shows the gospel is powerless. And when I look at that, I'm like, no, that is not what we want to see. It says, if any of you have a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world and the world is judged by you? Are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? And what you're seeing here is Paul is reminding them of their identity in Christ. Don't you know who you are? You're going to judge the saints. I mean, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge the angels. Don't you know who you are? Why would you go to the, an outside source to come up with some lawsuit when you guys are eternal, supernatural beings because you have Christ living inside of you? Why would you do that? This is, this is dumb is what he's saying. He's, he's, he's saying this, this sends a message to the world that the gospel is powerless. And so for those of you that don't know this morning, the unique message of the Bible is this, that God created the world and created mankind for a unique relationship with him. You know that in Genesis. And so what happened in Genesis 3, sin came in, broke that relationship with him. It separated us from God, and we can do nothing to repair that separation. Okay, But what happened is God, in his great mercy, sent Jesus, his son, who took the consequences of our sin, repaired what was broken between us. He defeated sin, death, and Satan, and he reconciled us back to a right relationship with God. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. It's awesome. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian in this house, when God looks down on you, he doesn't see sinners who are separated from him. He sees Christ. He sees Christ. And so because Jesus died in our place, he took our guilty title and gifted us with his right standing. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what should fire us up. That's what should make us rise above conflict, above division. That's what should draw us to church. That's what should not make us stay at home. That's what should make us go to connect group because we want to be around the people of God. Amen. Because our hearts are the same. And we have a mission. We're living for something more than just everyday life, the mundane things of life, work, home. All, we're, we're living for more. And this morning, that has to be the, the, the direction that we're living. And what's crazy to think about is what Paul is saying. And I'm like, I'm probably like one of the Corinthians, like, Paul, what'd you say? We're going to judge people and we're going to judge angels. What are you talking about? But what's crazy about the Bible is that's what it says. I'm not saying that. That's what the Bible says. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, what does it say? It says, judgment is going to be given to the saints of the Most High. 
of the Most High God. We're going to judge the world, the unsaved. What in the world? Some of y'all are like, that's deep. Read your Bible. I'm telling you, it's in there. I'm telling you. So when the, when the watching world begins to see us quarreling, fighting, squabbling, on trivial, trivial matters that don't really have much eternal value, what they hear is the message of our hope is no different than theirs. They can find this same hope in drugs and life and women and all the things they can, they can put it on anything, and it's the same thing as we have because what we have is not that powerful. It communicates that the gospel isn't that special, isn't that powerful. That's what happens when the visions in the church happen. We tell the world the gospel isn't that great, right? That's what we do. But what, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. So my question for you, and you don't have to answer this, but think about this. Do you believe that? Do you believe this morning that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? And are you living that way in light of that? And I want to ask you again, do you really believe that? Because really believing the gospel, really understanding the gospel changes your life, changes the trajectory of everything that you're doing. The second thing that Paul shows us that living this way does, it, it, it shows the world that the church is incompetent. It shows that the gospel is powerless, and it shows that the church is incompetent. That's why the church has very little worth to the world around us, because they see us living powerless lives whenever we claim to have all the power in the universe living inside of us. If we say one thing, we do another. My heart today is that we would come out of that. Yeah. Verse 4, what does it say? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is a not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate? Arbitrate is a long, hard word. Between fellow believers. Guys, I love Paul's sarcasm. Jesus did it too. Sarcasm is fun sometimes, right? Could it be, I say this to your shame, could it be that there's nobody amongst you that is smart enough to arbitrate between two people? Is there's, could it be that there's nobody in the church that can help person A and person B figure out the crap? Sorry, that's a bad word. My bad. If you're under 10 in here, forgive me. You know what I'm saying? Could you, could, is, is there anybody? What does he say in verse 6? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. So we do this before the world, and it makes us look incompetent. It makes us look powerless. And so the Corinthian church was saying, we can't handle these issues. These things are too big. Let's bring in some real authority, some law, and figure out these things, and we'll figure these things out together around the world. And so we've seen already in first chapters 1 through 5, the Corinthians were bowing to the cultural norms of their day, right? Th throughout, throughout the first six chapters, that's what we're seeing. But here... What they're doing is bowing to the legal system outside the church. They're bowing to the legal system outside the church to settle their matters inside the church. And so to Paul, this is outrageous. What does he say? How dare you do this? How dare you do this? Who is the foundation of all laws in the world? God. God is the foundation of the, all the laws in the world. You cannot have law apart from God. There's no moral law apart from the moral law giver. Now we're getting to apologetics, right? There's no moral law apart from the moral law giver, God. And the Corinthians were claiming to have a relationship with this mighty, glorious, moral law giver God while going to people outside their church who don't even acknowledge God to enforce the moral law. Do you see the ridiculousness of the situation? And Paul says, how dare you? How dare you? One commentator on this passage says, their actions demonstrated that they consider the norms and the methods of the culture more significant and powerful than the teachings and power of Christ. It says their, their actions demonstrated that they consider the norms and the methods of the culture around them more significant and powerful than the teachings and the power of Christ. And something to consider this morning is this, is has the way that we have handled conflict and disagreements in our life communicated the same thing? Has the way that you have handled conflict and disagreements in your life communicated the same thing to the world? Whether it be with your spouse, a loved one, someone that you work with, someone in the church, has it communicated the same thing? Because, when our, because what we know is when our, when our interpersonal conflicts leak outside the church, we tell the world that the gospel is powerless. We tell the world that the church is incompetent. And the last thing we tell the world is God's not glorious. God's not glorious. 
That's what we tell the world. What does verse 6 through 8 say? It says, instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Do you hear that? To have legal disputes against another brother is already a defeat for you. Even if you win, it's still a defeat. Even if you win that lawsuit, you can't have pride in it because it's a defeat, because you're giving a testimony to the world. It doesn't matter. And so Paul hits the point all the time. He hits this point all the time in the Bible. Every, every book, he, the picture is the church is a picture of Christ to the watching world. You see that? Everywhere in the Bible, you see Paul, the church is a picture of Christ to the watching world. And when our conflicts spill over into the world, this looks like a family who's had a dispute at home in their house, but now they're out in the yard fighting. Anybody ever had a situation? Don't answer this. Okay. Anybody ever had a situation in their life where their neighbors were outside fighting? And you're like, you're like, should I go intervene? Should I, should I call the police? Should I just stay inside and turn the music? What should I do? You know, have you ever had a situation where, listen, it's awkward, right? It's awkward. The world sees this like an episode of Springer, right? Get a, get a, get a camera. Let's watch this happen. This is, this is great. They say one thing, but they're doing something else. Let's, let's, let's Facebook, right? Let's, let's do this. They say they serve a powerful God who's, who's able to do all these things, but look what they're living. Like, they're, this is a public spectacle. This is not what they say. It's a spectacle to the world. And guys, what I just said a moment ago is true. It doesn't matter if you win, you still lose. It doesn't matter if you win, you still lose. If you're not handling conflict the way the Lord has called us to. Because guess what? You don't get to take your family to court and then win and then go back home and sit on the couch and eat Hot Pockets like everything's fine and boast about your victory. You can't, you can't do that. It's like, <laughs> I won, you lost, we're good to go. No, it's ridiculous. No one wins. And that's what he's talking about in the church, the family of God. We have to be on guard because our need to be right, the way that we live together and do life together as the church, what it does, it communicates a message to the world. What message are you communicating to the world by the way that you handle conflict in the body of Christ? Some people, this is not in my notes, but some people just tend to back up and just kind of come to church and stay on the outsides and don't ever get involved and use their gifts for the kingdom because they just sing too much, know too much. I just want to come worship, so I'm just going to be a wallflower and just kind of do my thing. And they never get involved. That's, that's some, that may be some of you in here. I don't know. My heart is that we would overcome that. We're giving a message about the power of God, the confidence of the church, and about the gloriousness of God. The second danger we run into in conflict is refusing to be wrong. Refusing to be wrong. So needing to be right, refusing to be wrong. And this might sound like point one, but it's just worded differently. But I'm hoping I can show you the difference. Um, so when you look at this, needing to be right, what it does is it flows from a place of misplaced identity, right? Remember that? We talked about that. Ne needing to be right flows from a place of misplaced identity. Refusing to be wrong flows from a misunderstanding of human nature. It flows from a misunderstanding of human nature. Uh, the church has bought into the lie, I believe, even as Christians, that deep down inside that we're really good people, right? We, we bought, we, we about to get real in here for a second, okay? Just put your, your seatbelt on. Um, we bought into this lie that deep down inside we're good people. If something dark or sinful comes out of us, it's just situational. That person, I just, I just a reaction, punch them in the face, you know? No, but I don't think this is something that our culture has taught us. I think it's something we're born with called sin. <laughs> it's so easy for me to look at my three-year-old and see this, but it's so hard for me to see this in myself. Y'all can probably see it in me. I can probably see it in you. But it's hard to look at yourself and say, <laughs> you know what I mean? But what's funny is as adults, as an adult, I use the same excuses that my three-year-olds do, Right? They had something I wanted, right? They hurt my feelings. They pushed me, right? Anybody else ever? <laughs> we use the same excuses. It's real. We never grow up. That's what I'm showing you, right? And so what I see in this is why do we do this? Well, James 4 tells us why we do this. What does he say? James 4, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from what? Your passions that do what? Wage war within you. So my heart today is that you would see that the sinful nature that lives inside of you that will be exterminated from you at the glorification, the coming of Christ, 
is something that wages war against you. It's why you have desires that are not particularly in alignment with Christ. That's why it's so important for us to be connected to Christ and the Holy Spirit and connected to the church so that we can hold one another accountable. Why would there need to be church discipline if we were perfect, right? My heart today is that you would see your passions, your heart's desires. Uh, and to the culture around us, guess what? What's the highest authority in our culture? It's the human heart. What is our culture telling us right now? Follow your heart, bro. This is my truth, right? This is my truth. I want that, and there's nothing that can stop standing in the way of me getting that. Guys, I want to tell you this morning that the Bible disagrees with this. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. What, who can understand it? Jesus. We need Jesus. Another author says, The heart of the human problem is the human heart. Can I get a witness on that? The heart of the human problem is the human heart. Nobody in this room is out of, the, out of the way of this. We're all struggling with the same thing. That's why we need each other. Guys, our hearts are jacked up. Our hearts are broken compasses leading us in the wrong direction. We don't follow our heart. We lead our heart through Scripture. You see that? We, let our, we lead our heart through Scripture. This is our compass, not our heart. And this morning, I want to show you is this is why we need Jesus, because our problems aren't external. Our problems are not what this person did to me or what this person said to me or what, this, what happens in my life. The problem is internal. I need Jesus to come fix my heart. And this is why Jesus came with the gospel. Let me tell you, the glass can only spill what's inside of it. Do you see that? The glass can be knocked around, but it can only spill out what's already inside of it. You see that in the imagery? And so what you see in that, that junk that came out when you were shaken is in you. That junk that came out when you were, when you were tested and tried is what's in you. When, you. when we refuse to be wrong, when we refuse, when we have pride in our hearts and we're not a, a, able to budge, we may think the situation is what's causing our reaction, but it's actually the thing that God is using to reveal what actually is going on in our hearts. So what comes out of you when you're shaken, my question is, what comes out of you when you're shaken? I have a great example for you this morning. Not example, I have some homework. When you're ready, okay, when you're ready, you need to be ready for this. Ask your spouse what comes out of you when you're shaken. Be ready for the answer. Tell her or him this is not a trap, okay? And let them speak freely, and they'll tell you the truth. My wife has left the room, so I'm good on this so when we jump to defend ourselves, when we jump to defend ourselves against things rather than admitting that we're wrong, what happens is we can fail, we can fall for that lie that everything in us is good. And we fail to see the sin in our own heart and only focus on the actions of the people who've wronged us. And we become self-deceived. And as we're self-deceived, we become an easy target for the enemy to use to divide the church. Do you see that? What happens is, this is what happens in the American church. So many times, man, we have these people who are loosely connected with the church. We're kinda, we have these relationships that, I told you this before, we, have, we all have escape plans of some sort, right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to love you, and we're going to be close, we're going to be a part of the church, but if I feel uncomfortable or feel like you've wronged me, I'm out. Just parachute, done, right? Everybody has an escape plan, we do. Okay, so my heart would be that we would see that Paul was saying, get rid of that. And learn how to live close, intimate relationships with each other as the church so that the world can see Christ through that. Because what happens when we do this? We miss an opportunity to proclaim Christ in our differences, in our disagreements. In our disagreements, what happens is when we come close and say, despite this, Christ has magnified the world, sees a beautiful picture of Jesus. And that's the heart. Guys, the cross is the center point of our faith. The idea that Jesus came to earth and was willingly wronged is the centerpiece of our faith. Was Jesus rightfully put on the cross? No. Did he say, hey, I, I'm innocent. Take me off the cross. I'm innocent. I don't want to do this. No, he didn't do that. He willingly went to the cross for our sins. He was willingly wronged. He was wrongfully sentenced. He was wrongfully condemned. He was wrongfully crucified. So what makes us think that we should step up and when we're wronged or when we're in the church? And we're, why do we have to be right? 
Why can't we admit when we're wronged? Why can't we admit when we wrong someone else? Jesus knew, and this is the beauty in the sovereignty of God. Jesus knew that God's plan would be accomplished despite his being wronged. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that Jesus' plan being accomplished in your life in this world will be accomplished despite what happens to you? Do you realize that? Do you understand that? And so Jesus knew that. And so we live out a low view of God when we divide against each other in the church and we try to prevent from ever being wronged, right? Don't we? We, we live out a low view of God when we doubt God's ability to work in the hard situations, when we demand to be right, demand to be treated right right now, we de- when we demand justice now, when we demand glory now, we live out a low view of God. And we express a doubt in God's promises to be the ultimate vindicator and the one who will enact justice in the end like he promised. Do you see that? Whenever we live like this, we, we forget who God is and what he's done and what he promised. Another commentator said of this, this passage, he says, it's more Christ-like to accept being wronged than to pursue retaliation through the means that contradict God's teachings. It's more Christ-like to accept being wronged than to pursue retaliation through the means that contradict Christ's teaching. In the community of Christ, no interpersonal differences should be irreconcilable. I don't care what it is. The culture tells you that if you're, if you, I'll, tell, I'll use the most extreme example. If you've been cheated on in your marriage, does the Bible say, hey, you need to get divorced? No, it doesn't. It says that is, a, that is, that is an excusable way to get a divorce, but God's heart is always for reconciliation. God wants to be you to be reconciled to your spouse. God wants a sinner to be reconciled to the church. We talked about that last week. God wants the disagreements to be reconciled and restored so that his glory can be seen in it. No interpersonal differences should be irreconcilable in the church. It is better and more Christ-like to be wronged than to sacrifice one's testimony. Guys, and that's what's at risk. Our testimony about Christ, what he's done. That's why Paul said, how dare you take this stuff to the world? Guys, we can be wrong because we have a God who is a God of justice. We have a God who is a God of justice. And as the band comes back, we're going to do one more song. The third point of today, the third danger of conflict that we face in conflict is that we lose sight of our inheritance. We lose sight of our inheritance. Look at, look at verse 7. It says, as it is to have legal dispute against another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Guys, those two questions are the most anti-American questions we've ever read in this room. Right? Why not be wronged? Why not be cheated? Like, what? Paul, what you talking about? You smoking now. What's, what's happening? Like, what's going on here? No, I don't want to be wrong. I'm, I'm right. Right? I have pride. I'm not, I, 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 I'm, you know? No. Why not be wrong? Why not be cheated? In other words, it's not about you. It's not about me. Instead, you yourselves do wrong and you cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, homosexuality. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power, excuse me, and by the Spirit of God. That's awesome. That is a beautiful picture for us all. But what happens in conflict against a brother or a sister or anybody else in the world is we forget and we lose sight of God's inheritance that he's given us in Christ Jesus. You know that? Sometimes we live lives that are just low and we forget about whose we are. And this morning, as I was reading some of this stuff, kind of preparing, what I've noticed is that my entire life, I've read verses 9 through 11, talking about no sexual immoral, no idolatry, no adulterers, no homosexuals, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, verbally abusive, swindlers, will not be saved, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I always have read that as like, these are the people who are not going to heaven. But Paul is not writing this like that. Paul is writing this to remind them, this is what you used to be. 
remember what God has saved you from. Remember the beauty of the gospel that calls you to turn your life away from the sin and death and into the gloriousness of Christ. Remember what God has saved you from the depths of your sin and remember that and use that in the light of coming to Christ and as you, as you endure conflict. Paul is saying, don't you remember who you were? Don't you remember what you were? He's saying, don't you remember what God has saved you from? Live in light of that. Because let me tell you, God had every right and still has every right to be in conflict with you. But in love, he absorbed every sin, every wrong, every offense that you have ever committed and every wrong, every sin, and every, every offense that you will ever commit. That is the beauty of the, of the cross. This morning, if that doesn't resonate with you, my, my prayer is that God would, would just restart your spiritual heart this morning, that you would awaken to what God has done through the gospel. And the thing about it is that God, Jesus dying on the cross, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says he did this with joy. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Guys, we read that, it kind of loses some of its intensity. Guys, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, spears in his side, thorns on his head for our sins. He endured that punishment that was set for me. That was my punishment. My eternal damnation was set for me because of my sin. But Jesus stepped in the way and said, no, I'm going I'm to take that for him. I'm going to take that for him. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged and cheated? And what this does, guys, it reminds me of a story, in a parable in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. You can turn there if you're good with Bible drill, or you can just look on the screen. Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35, and what's funny is this comes right off of the, the, the church discipline verse from last week. The next verse, it starts this parable. It says, then Peter approached him and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? How many times should I do that, God? Because if they keep sinning against me, I'm gonna punch them in the face, right? How many times should I, for, how many times should I forgive them? Because like, I'm getting tired of it, you know? And what does he say? As, as many as seven times? Jesus replied, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Guys, this is not saying multiply 70 times seven and that's how many times you should, you should forgive somebody. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a complete number. Seven is the number of completion. Com forgive them forever. Completely forgive them always. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. He goes into telling a story. Can, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle the accounts, one who owed 20,000 talents was brought before him. That's 20 years of wages. Some of y'all haven't been working 20 years yet. Think about that for a second. He owed the king 20,000 wages, an insurmountable amount. And that's what sin is in our life. We owe more debt to God than we can pay. You see that? He goes on. What does he say? He says, since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will repay everything. Then the master of that servant, what? He had compassion. God had compassion because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He released him, forgave him the loan. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's one day's wage. This man was saved from 20 years of debt. And he goes out, finds a brother or sister in the church who owed him one, days of, one day of pay and went and condemned him. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging, be patient with me, I will pay you back. What does that sound like? Sounds like the guy. But he was unwilling. Instead, he went and threw him in prison until he could pay what he was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything he was owed. 
So also my heavenly Father will do with you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. From your heart. This morning, what I'm seeing in this is it's breaking my heart to see brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who have been forgiven of insurmountable debt in their life. You can never pay back the debt of sin. Even one sin in your life, Jesus paid it all on the cross. The song says, all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, he's washed me white as snow. For us to have that possession in our life and to walk out of here and say, hey, pay me back the one day's wage that you owe me, I'm gonna throw you in prison. That does not speak grace and truth and mercy to a world that needs it. That speaks hypocrisy. We should be a supernatural body who does what for others, what Christ has done for us. And Paul is saying, you've been wronged. Guess what? You'll be wronged again. Somebody's gonna do you wrong again. You've been hurt. Guess what? You'll be hurt again. You've been offended. Guess what? You'll be offended again. But do you want the blessing of God? Do you want the blessing of God? Absorb that offense with joy like Christ did on the cross. Absorb that offense, not in a way to please man or to be glorified for how merciful you are, but to magnify the name of Christ and to build up his church to unity and maturity. Guys, Paul is calling us to something really hard here. He's asking us to give up our rights. He's asking us to give up our rights for the name of Jesus, for, for the reputation of his people, and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Are you ready to give up your rights so that God's name can be glorified in your city, in this world? Guys, and I love, I love this so much. I love to be reminded that God still transforms lives. A few weeks ago, Miss Janice was baptized. A few weeks ago, we had a few people baptized, and I just remember their testimonies about what God had done, and something that sticks out to me is Miss Janice, I'm not even sure how old she is, but she's, she's the, the matriarch of our church is what I always tell her. But she came out of the church and says, praise Jesus. After this many years, just praising the Lord, a transformed life coming to Christ and reminding him that he, she loves him. But what happens is sometimes we become so out of touch with the transforming power of God in our lives, we need to be reminded of what God has done over and over again. And this is what Paul is doing. Because I'll tell you this, people who understand the depth of their sin and what they've been forgiving of tend to be very motivated to extend forgiveness to other people. I, I, you know? But Paul points out a very important point. In Christ, this is who you were, but this is not who you are anymore. You have been washed, sanctified, justified by the blood of Jesus. You've been called to live above sin and shame. You've been called to live in unity and maturity. You don't need your vindication now. You don't need your justice now. You don't need to be now, but Jesus has justified you. So this morning, I don't know where you're at. I'm not sure if you have conflict with a brother or sister or spouse or, or a church member in this place this morning, but my prayer is that you would get that right today before you leave. It's so important that you should just go grab them by the hand and bring them to the altar and say, brother, forgive me, I was wrong. Sister, forgive me, I was wrong. But I've done something to you that you don't even know about. I'm, forgive me, I was wrong. So that we can have unity in this body. It's so important, the guys, this morning, maybe that you don't know this type of grace because you haven't known Christ. I shared the gospel with you earlier that Christ came and died a death on the cross and rose again because you could not pay that, that wage that the king was demanding of your life. So Christ came and paid it for you. And all you have to do is look to Jesus and bend the knee to him as Lord and Savior. So many of us want to have a Savior but not a Lord, but you can have one without the other. So this morning, if that's, your, if that's your decision, if you need to, to make a decision to say, hey, I have been a fan of Jesus, but I have never been a follower of Jesus. If that's you this morning, you say, hey, Michael, this morning, I want to turn my life over to Christ and follow him the rest of my life as that servant, as, we're, as Paul was talking about today in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to remember whose I was. I want to remember the things that I came from. And I want to remember the grace that was given to me. If that's you this morning, you know that God is calling you to himself this morning because this is something I know. It's not a decision that you make, it's a decision that God makes. He calls you. All you have to do is answer. And this morning, if you wanna say, hey, Michael, I, God is moving in my heart. I need, to, I need to see what that's about. We would love to pray with you. We would love to walk with you. We would love to, to come alongside you. So if you guys would bow your heads with me, I wanna pray for you. 
God, we thank you for the people in this room. We thank you for your heart for, for the nations. We thank you for your heart for this church. God, I pray for the person in this room right now, Father, that doesn't know you. I pray, God, that you would just burden their heart for salvation. I pray that they would see the, the depth of their sin and the beauty of your grace. And when they compare that, Father, it's, 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 it's irresistible. So this morning, if, if that's you, if you know that this morning is the day of salvation for you, but you haven't followed Christ, you may have played games with Christ for a long time, but you've never followed him, and you know today is that day, would you just do something bold right now with every head bowed and just raise your hand and say, that's me today, Michael. That's me. That's me. Is that anybody in this room? For the rest of us, my heart would be that we would come to this altar and get things right with the Lord this morning, repent, turn our hearts back to him, remember who we were so that we could remember who we are. So God, move in this place this morning as we worship. Move in our hearts in Jesus' name.